What are the biggest letdowns that you have suffered at the hands of nerd media? What show, game, film, or comic left you in a daze of disappointment? Let's talk through our emotions in today's episode of The Byword. Welcome to episode 178 of the Nerd by Word, a nerd culture podcast where the hosts are not mystically de-aged by artificial intelligence and the back pain is very real. In today's Byword Big Talk, we take evasive maneuvers to avoid actual therapy and instead opt for a signal lock on the greatest letdowns we have experienced from the nerd world. But first, we're nothing if not consistent creatures of habit. It is, of course, time for... Dave, I just spent $300 on a Switch OLED. Did I waste my money? Well, I don't know about wasting your money. I mean, obviously, you have access to a great library of games as far as I'm concerned. However, uh, rumors are heating up that this year might see the release of a uh, sequel successor console to the Switch, which uh, the media is right now dubbing the Switch 2, although I have a really cool idea for a name that's a little throwback and retro. Maybe that's just me, however. Uh, The rumors are really heating up, though. Uh, Most recently, as of recording, um, uh, Altec Lansing, which is a company that's getting involved in AI or something, put out a press release and apparently may or may not have accidentally leaked that the Nintendo Switch 2 is uh, set to release uh, in September. However, since that initial um, uh, leak, let's call it that, uh, the company has backtracked twice, first claiming fall 2024, and then citing that Nintendo has not officially announced a launch date yet. Um, now, obviously, Nintendo uh, does a lot of work with with third parties, and it's very possible that some third parties are already aware when the Switch 2 is supposed to launch, um, and uh, Altec Lansing should have kept their mouth shut. Uh, it's hard, t- <laughs> hard telling at this point. Um, there's also been some rumors that uh, Nintendo Switch 2 uh, could be unveiled by the end of March, uh, that there's going to be some kind of Nintendo Direct uh, posted online to kind of uh, you know make their pitch for this sequel console. Um, and uh, previously reliable leakers also um, claim that there's going to be a new 3D Mario and another a new Mario Kart game. Uh, obviously, Mario Kart uh, 8 has been uh, supported massively with additional tracks uh, on the Switch uh, in multiple like packs that you could download. So that that game is still going pretty strong. Um, other rumors include that uh, NVIDIA is in, involved in uh, the hardware for the next console, that it's going to be significantly more powerful. Uh, some people are claiming that it could be on par with something like the PlayStation 4, so uh, basically just one generation behind. Um, so there's a lot of stuff going on. A lot The rumor mill is really heating up, uh, I guess, uh, the only other rumor that, that's probably worth pointing out at this point is that, uh, you know, the, the talk is that this is going to be a backwards compatible console and your entire current Switch library will switch uh, will switch over to the new one if you buy a <laughs> new console. Now, as far as names go, I think Switch 2 is really lame. I, w- I think it would be really awesome if they called it the, nin- the Super Nintendo Switch, but maybe that's just me. Uh, what's your take on this, Chris? I'm still kind of 
trapped in the fact that I just got one again, and uh, I may be obsolete before I'd like to be. I'd like to get at least a couple of years out of this <clears throat> before I have to to uh, switch to another console. I-, I was thinking something like the Switch Up, but I'm, I'll tell you what. Listen, if I dropped three hundred bucks, well, even more than that, but you know, by the time you get games and all of that, controllers and, and everything. But listen, it's it's been a dream come true, like playing Zelda, getting the Switch Online, and and tackling some of these games that uh, that I didn't get to play with an N64. Um, I'm just incredibly frugal. <laughs> and so I like to get every bit of juice out of every single squeeze that I make. So um, it, it, it is kind of funny that they kind of just put their foot in their mouth with uh, this just random press release when uh, we are so far out from anything even being announced, rather, let alone released. Yeah, I find it incredibly amusing. I'm really, you know, cautiously optimistic. Uh, You know, Nintendo has made it a habit to lag behind uh, current gen consoles as far as like graphical fidelity goes, but that's never really been the selling point for me when it comes to Nintendo products. I do think, though, uh, given, you know, some of the performance issues that uh, Tears of the Kingdom reportedly had, um, that it, it might be time just for a refresh and just put a little bit more power in the hands of developers. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to see what they can do with that. And I'm sure there's been a lot of work already completed behind the scenes. I think console launches are generally fun, but maybe it's the nostalgia. Maybe it's just that I've always been a Nintendo boy, but there's something really special about a new Nintendo console launching because generally they just throw everything in the kitchen sink at you. You know, you really get some, some cool stuff. Uh, the N64 launch was incredibly memorable. Just, you know, alone for Super Mario 64, which just came out of nowhere and revolutionized, you know, the, the, the idea of a 3D platformer. Uh, so I've, I've, I, I can't help myself. I get excited when, uh, when Nintendo is getting ready to launch something new because they, they usually they, they come out swinging with some interesting software releases right along with it. So I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously, cautiously optimistic and excited about this release. Isn't that your eternal mood? Cautiously optimistic? Like you should have that trademarked at this point. <laughs> I, I do try to be optimistic. But I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to go through life all sour about everything. Let's just, right. let's just hope for the best and prepare for the worst, I guess, you know? <laughs> let me, let me tell you, my Instagram and TikTok, like, feeds have been completely overtaken by these nostalgia accounts and so like seeing like particularly the day and time where everything was like these see-through like bright colors and so like my cousin the the one n64 i did get to play is when i visited my cousin in illinois and they had that green see-through uh nintendo 64 and like i i was ridiculously antisocial that trip all i did was play n64 like i didn't even visit with my family at all uh because it was such a great time man mine was atomic purple atomic Ooh, purple was the name of the color it was like that see-through purple it was very yes, very cool i think yes. i think i still have my atomic purple controller somewhere but i had to i had to change the, the hardware already my old n64s you know but uh yeah yeah I, I love that i wish that consoles would try you know to look a little bit more i guess like toys again and a little less like mm-hmm. i mean the, the, the xbox the xbox series x looks basically like a mini fridge at this point you know like um, which we haven't we haven't covered that on the show and i don't want to uh 
put our business out there on the streets, but uh, you recently treated yourself, Dave. I did treat myself. I finally got that that uh, beautiful Series X, and I, I think I'm going to talk about it probably in the next couple of weeks. I'm still playing around with it and getting used to some stuff with it. And once once I've uh, made a determination how I really feel about it, I'm going to probably talk about it. At the very least, uh, if it's nerd commendable, I'll put it in nerd commendations. But uh, still experimenting with it right now. <laughs> All right. So, Chris, what's your new story? Well, um, it feels really crazy the timeline of this, but fresh out of one of like a historical strike by SAGRAFTRA and the WGA, we already have an artificial intelligence deal that was agreed to by SAGRAFTRA. Um, and it is quite contentious, as, as you might imagine. Um, so they have agreed to a deal with tech company Replica Studios, and that pertains to the licensing and use of AI replicas of voices in video games and, quote, will enable Replica to engage SAG-AFTRA members under a fair ethical agreement to safely create and license a digital replica of their voice. Licensed voices can be used in video game development and other interactive media projects from pre-production to final release. Um, Replica CEO Shreyas Nivas said in a statement, quote, our act our voice actor agreements ensure that game developers using our platform are only accessing licensed talent who have given permission for their voice to be used as a training data set, as opposed to the wild west of AI platforms using unethical data scraping methods to replicate and synthesize voices without permission, end quote. So this all sounds reasonable enough if you're going to go down an ai pathway this sounds like a pretty decent deal however sag after claims that members were in on this and were aware of this deal and several voice actors said uh what are you talking about um Steve Bloom, who is a prolific voice actor, including in many formats, including video games, um, Diablo 4, Mortal Kombat, uh, posted on social media, quote, excuse me, with all due respect, you stayed in the article approved by affected members of the voiceover community. Nobody in our community approved this that I know of. Games are the bulk of my livelihood and have been for years. Who are you referring to? Uh, Starfield actor Elias Tufexis said, quote, I would humbly consider myself one of the top voice actors in games. No one asked me about this. No one reached out for my opinion. From what I'm seeing, no one asked any of my peers either. So on the one hand, um, as I stated previously, it seems like it is a reasonable enough deal when it comes to AI, if that is a path that you want to take, as I said. But claiming that your talent, the people that your union is representing were in on this decision is wild. So even, but then at the same time, like it's, it's a really convoluted thing, Dave, I guess is, is because if you don't agree to this, then you don't have to be conscripted to it. So just, it's, it's really fascinating to, to see all of this unfold right as the ink is drying on, on some of these agreements with SAG-AFTRA. Uh, and and the WG as well. Yeah, categorically speaking, I am um, against the use of AI in any way, shape, or form when it replaces uh, human creativity 
right? I, I'm not a big I'm not a big fan of that. Uh, and I will freely admit there are areas where I very freely use AI because I don't think that it is, you know, replacing uh, a creatively, um, you know, uh, the, the, the human creativity, right? Um, for example, uh, you know, when it comes to our our episode transcripts, I uh, really, you know, just don't have the time to sit here and listen back to the entire episode and type every word up that we say. So I do use an AI system to create a a transcript, which I then go through and proof. Um, and I think for that kind of thing, AI is really good. You know, there are things where it can streamline your work process, but the end product of what you're creating is still distinctively, you know, human created. I mean, we're not AI bots last time I checked. So right. <laughs> the content of our show is still, you know, the product of human creativity, like it or not. Um, and so the idea that we're now running to replace voice actors with, with, you know, AI systems is very, very troubling to me. I really dislike that kind of thing. Not just because it, you know, it puts, you know, voice actors out of work, but there's just something very, very icky about, you know, uh, corporations constantly trying to cut out the human element and looking for shortcuts. Uh, that's why I really don't like, um, you know, like AI art either. It's, it's, it's not just that the things are like trained on, on actual artists art, you know, and are basically ripping off those artists, but there's something at the end product that I feel is, is, is kind of soulless when you realize that there were no human beings involved in creating, you know, particular performance, um, I just, I just don't like it. I, I don't want any part of that. Um, I think there are really good legitimate uses for AI, but, but, you know, replacing, replacing human creativity, I don't think is a good, is a good place to take that technology. And I would imagine, um, the one that, the one that really bothers me right now is all these AI covers of songs. Like it is, they are promoting the crap out of that for some reason. It is all across my, my TikTok feed for sure. Um, and it's just really like, it feels gross to even have it pop up. Like I immediately swipe away from it, but like even having to hear it for a second or two before I can knee jerk, remove it. It's just gross to me. It it, it makes me feel disgusting. And I, and I can only imagine I am not myself a voice actor, but I'm, I'm trying to imagine if someone were to, AI generate, like replace some of the stuff from my day job. Like that's something that I enjoy doing. That's something that I went studied in college for is to be able to do the things that I do on a daily basis. And while of course, you know, work can be stressful, what job can't be, there are still, there's still a reason that I chose that profession. And you'd be hard pressed to like, I don't want to give that away. Like that's, the the enjoyment I have from from working my day job and doing the thing that I love so much that I committed four years of you know university training in to do that is is just wild to me, um, it, it, and and that's not to and we've talked about this a little bit that we have particular struggles with AI and stuff like that when it comes to education, um, I used. I use Duolingo daily and there's um, something that came across Reddit that they have replaced a majority of their human staff and opted for AI for checking translations and proofreading work. And that's incredibly disheartening. Yeah, I agree with that. All right. That wraps up nerd news for today's episode. Be sure to hit us up with your reactions on social media at nerd by word across 
any and all platforms with your reactions to these stories as well. But after this, our first break, our byword big talk with the big letdown. Welcome back to the main segment of our show. We call it our byword. And we're switching things up. We usually just list things, but we're going to go in a reverse order of the three biggest letdowns of nerd media, of video games, comic books, TV shows, series, movies that just let us down. They were the biggest disappointments. And so we are going in reverse order. Three, two, one. Dave, what is your third biggest letdown? My microphone stand right now because it literally is coming off of my desk. <laughs> if you give me one second, man, uh, might be my biggest letdown. I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really disappointing me right now. All right. I got it fixed. So uh, obviously, if we're going to be talking about disappointments in the nerd world, I have to start, um, you know, way back in the year 2006 when my heart was well and truly broken. Um and and, I, and it's really impressive how thoroughly this particular movie broke my heart, considering that the hype leading up to it had been, oof, the hype was real, man. I was ready for it. Um, and that is Superman Returns. Uh, so Superman Returns was directed by Brian Singer, uh, starring Brandon Routh, Kate Bosworth, and Kevin Spacey as Superman, Clark Kent, Lois Lane, and Lex Luthor, respectively, um, was released on June 28th, 2006. Had a reported budget of $204 million, although I don't think that's 100% fair, considering that they basically tacked on a bunch of the money that they spent on uh, previous iterations of the movie, which you know had been pretty much in development hell for years. Uh, just they kind of tacked it on to the, to the cost of this movie when it came to budget. I don't think that was entirely fair. Um, however, famously, Brian Singer left the X-Men franchise after X2, uh, in order to direct this movie, which is why you got uh, Brett Ratner for X3, right? Um, which was, a, uh, let's be honest, uh, a troubling uh, situation on your end as well. And I have a funny feeling we're going to revisit that at some point. Um, but I think there are several things to talk about when it comes to this movie and why it was disappointing. I think first, uh, it's it's really important to note how long it had been since... Um, since the Superman movie at that point, uh, the last Superman movie that had been on the big screen had been released um, in 1987. It was Superman four, uh, the quest for peace, which was also uh, a massive disappointment in the long run because of mad massive budget cuts, a different production team behind it, um, really dodgy special effects, uh, a complete, a cut that completely mutilated the original script. Um, so it had been a significant number of years, almost 20 years, since we had seen Superman on the big screen. And the most recent iteration at that point had been the Chris Reeves version. Um, so why was Superman Returns so disappointing? Uh, first, I think the, the hype was amazing. The very first trailer that was released, a, a teaser trailer, was epic uh it actually used not the superman theme uh from from john williams but uh the krypton theme had a very slow uh build up very great musical arrangement the scenes that flashed with it were awesome and then it culminated in a shot of uh brandon routh as superman you know flying and it's just like it 
uh, it's very difficult to describe what that felt like at the time as a massive Superman fan and there not having been a Superman movie since I was literally four years old. Uh, and then seeing this trailer, it was it was perfect. It was pitch perfect, and I was ready for it. I was I was there. Do you remember midnight showings, man? Because I was there at the midnight mm-hmm. showing of Superman Returns. I was there to see it. I I was ready. There were people dressed up as Superman in the crowd. There was hype in the air. The one I remember the most was that animated Beowulf that was three D. That was the one. Oh yeah, I yeah, Angelina Jolie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Best part so, of the movie. Best part of the movie. <laughs> Yeah, so what went wrong with Superman Returns? I think a number of things. Um, I'm going to completely now ignore... Uh, for a second, sort of the the, the modern perspective on people like, like Kevin Spacey and Brian Singer, you know, because there are things that we know now that we didn't know back then. But there were certainly things we knew back then that were wrong with this movie. And the very first thing was that it was a sequel, basically, to the Chris Reeve Superman movies. It was postulating that Superman left earth to go check out krypton for himself to make sure there were no survivors which is an interesting decision to make and that he's gone for several years um and then when he comes back lois lane is you know has moved on and has a a boyfriend and a kid and um and he's sort of trying to reintegrate into the world but ostensibly this is supposed to be the same superman as chris reeves which i think has it kind of constricted what the movie could be um story-wise also stylistically it tried to be very much an homage to those movies and so there wasn't really um an effort for like a really interesting uh physical villain and i think uh, man of steel in a lot of ways was a reaction to the the blowback on this movie because basically the movie culminates in in superman lifting something really heavy into space that's the climax of the movie right there's no no physical altercation no real chance for superman to like go toe-to-toe with somebody um and and superman 2 in a lot of ways should have probably been more the blueprint than than the first superman movie where it was all about physical feats rather than you know an actual fight or physical confrontation i think that was something that was missing here and and man of steel obviously went a little bit too far in the other way uh very much a reaction to superman returns I think the casting of Brandon Routh was really good. I liked him in the role, um, and I would have loved to see more of him in the role. Um, but I think, again, there was sort of a limitation because he was having to imitate a very specific version of Superman rather than sort of finding his own. Um, I thought Kate Bosworth lacked spunk in the role of Lois Lane. She was very flat in the role. That's not on her, but very much on the script, which sort of... Um, Kind kind of just let let what made Margot Kidder's performance so special go, um, and and really created a much flatter, less interesting character. And spoilers for a movie from almost uh, almost twenty years ago now. But guys, oh God, the how? kid, <laughs> but got but got the ki- guys, the kid that Lois Lane has is actually Superman's, and he does not know that he's been a deadbeat dad floating around in space this whole time because he didn't know that she was pregnant. And so um, there's so many there's so many weird things going on on here. Deadbeat dad, Superman, the fact that at one point he's hovering outside of Lois Lane's house and using a super hearing and x-ray vision to basically stalk her family life to see what her life is like. It's really, really awkward. The, the end of the movie, he's standing over his sleeping son and, and, and basically 
says some words to him, but he's like standing in the dark in a, in a little boy's room, which is like super creepy. <laughs> like <laughs> there are just so many weird choices happening in this movie. Um, there are great moments in the movie. The the plane rescue scene in particular, I think, played out perfectly and was really well done, uh, especially special effects wise for the time. And again, I really like Brandon Routh in this role. But there was so much misguided stuff going on in that script. It was way too beholden to what came before. And I say this as somebody who loves the early Chris Reeve Superman movies, particularly one and two. Um, this needed to be its own thing. And it failed to do so because reportedly Brian Singer was just a huge fan of the Chris Reeves movies and just wanted to continue that rather than having an honest-to-goodness own take on the character. Um, so it, it was a huge disappointment. Uh, in, in Although I own the movie and I've revisited since because I love Superman, that one is still one that, that, that chafes. It hurts, man. So this is a movie that I watched, I want to say, circa... 2012 and i've only seen it one time and i don't have any interest in revisiting it mostly because of kevin spacey um and brian singer uh <laughs> uh as you said but putting putting those things aside those that's a very clear our statement our feelings on them are very clear um but i'd be i think you'd be hard pressed to find dave and this may be a mean thing to say to you. Um, you'd be hard pressed to find a character, a superhero that has been more fraught in their on-screen representation. Would you agree with that? I think that's probably fair. O- outside they get, they, of they get, outside of those first two, outside of those first yeah, two, Reeves, they get, they get him movies. They get him wrong more often than they get him right. Regrettably, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, as someone who largely grew up Superman agnostic. Like I was aware of his existence. I watched the justice league animated series and enjoyed that. But even those shows kind of portray him as like a stick in the mud. So as great as those shows are, they don't really do him pun fully intended justice. Um, And so like it really took our friendship, your homework assignments for me to kind of finally get the character because he had been so misrepresented. Um, I remember liking Brandon Routh's acting, but now that like listening you to you lay all this out, it kind of makes me remember all the things that were weird. This, this movie felt so just awkward and out of place for me. And like, you know, I'm, I'm watching it six years later. Like it was just, it's such a weird film. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna say this because I know this is the weirdest nitpick ever. But if you if you look at the old Chris Reeve Superman movies, Superman has sort of natural hair, and Clark mm-hmm. Kent has a lot of product in his hair, right? The kind of like, yeah. I guess, contain the S curl and all that, right? Mm-hmm. And for right. reasons that I can't quite understand, they went the opposite direction in Superman Returns. They swapped. They, they swap the hairstyles. So now Clark Kent has natural looking hair and Superman has like a metric crap ton of product in it to hold it all in place. And that seems like such a weird thing. Like, hey, I'm going to have to go rescue an airplane. Let me go ahead and get my moose. Okay, I need to get my yeah. hair straightened out. Like, you know, it was it was a very, very weird choice. Just even like to, to reverse the hairstyles. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. they, just, they just didn't quite, even what they were trying to pay tribute to, it's like they didn't quite get it, you know? Yeah. And 
And Kate Bosworth is probably the most 2006 casting ever. <laughs> like that's like coming off of like something like Blue Crush. And like that was that was just so 2006, man. Like this feels like those um, those early Fantastic Four films, like that type of casting, um, which revisiting the first one, at least I enjoyed more than I remembered. Uh, but this one, like. So when you told me, like when we met and you said Lois Lane is one of like your all time favorite characters in fiction, I was like, dude, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, she's so boring. (laughs) She's so bland because this was the exposure that I had seen. And um, I think I watched this before I watched Superman, the first Superman. And so like, um, it's just wild to me. And so now that I have the blessing of having seen Bitsy Tullock in the role, I'm like, oh, I get it. Oh, my God. She's so good. (laughs) She is, to me, me, until Bitsy came along, like the quintessential Lois Lane performance to me. Obviously, Margot Kidder, you know, but, you know, Mm -hmm. obviously before my generation, I mean, her performance started out before I was even born. But like for my generation was was Terry Hatcher. Um, And as much as I am, you know, iffy on on you know that that particular show these days that she performed in uh her lowest lane was the lowest lane for me growing up you know and 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 now bitsy came along and i think she kind of redefined that role for another generation i'm really i'm really excited to see you know uh the performance that we're going to get for lois and superman legacy um i have high hopes for that but as of right now oh, yeah. i'd say a bit bitsy is queen like that that's lois lane right there in a nutshell so all right, Chris, uh, let's talk more disappointments. Uh, this one I can't really relate to, but I've heard enough about it that I'll at least be able to hold my own, I think. So what you got? Maybe recency bias is affecting my choice here, but it it needs to be aired out. Um, the 2023, just this most recent Hellfire Gala, and basically any most, most subsequent titles. Uh, X-Men Red, we love you. You're perfect. Um, but everything since this 2023 Hellfire Gala, it was it feels like such a slap in the face. Um, so TLDR for folks who are not X-Men fans and reading it, you are at least aware of Krakoa and everything that has happened since uh, House of X Powers of 10 and the reboot. If by no other means peripherally you understand what Krakoa has meant as like this rebrand, this soft reboot by Jonathan Hickman and company. Um, and the Hellfire Gala of 2023 was like hitting the big red abort button on all of this. And it has been a rapid free fall since then a rapid descent. Like, um, so basically what happens is this is the third annual Hellfire Gala and the previous Hellfire Galas have been really cool, really innovative. You get to see a lot of cool fashion and outfits. Um, they, in the first Hellfire Gala, they, um, they settle the planet of Mars, rename it Araco. They completely like change the atmosphere and make it livable. It's really, really cool. Um, and then in the third one, you have uh, just genocide, like absolute murder. Um, you have the most diverse X-Men team in history 
And on the very next page, they are brutally murdered on page. You see body parts flying. It is one of the most grotesque torture porn uh, shock value type of things I've ever seen in the medium of comic books. It's incredibly gross and grotesque. Um, I'm not going to list the creators here because it's just deeply upsetting. And I don't want to make this like a pointed attack at them. Um, and it's just, it's been, and, and, and again, and aside from X-Men Red, every subsequent title is essentially how quickly can we rescind all of the progress that has been made by the Krakoan era and mutants finally not being the target of (laughs) persecution and murder and it's just been a hot mess you add to the fact that we have kamala khan kind of just log jammed in here and now we're making her the face of mutants but it's in the worst possible era to take one of the most popular characters in all of comics and just have her be on the run all the time it's just i i feel the same way about well, even more so than this because of that that one page I'll I'll never forget that as long as I live of of how upsetting it was to see something like that um to see black and brown characters just completely tortured for shock value will never never leave me um and it's very similar to what they did with Avengers versus X-Men, which a lot of mainstream Marvel fans enjoyed because of speeches and all this. But that's that was an abrupt end to the Utopia era, which was, again, great progress for the mutant characters. They were uncharted, char- uh, uncharted territory. They were doing new things. They were making progress. They were being self you know, experiencing self-preservation and really great stories. Great writing was coming out of that. And it was such a hard reset. And here we are again doing it. Um, And it's just this, this issue upset me so much. I stopped reading new comics for two months. I mean, then again, I was playing Starfield. And so like, I was having a good time, but I was like, why, why am I going to read something if it just viscerally upsets me? There is so much good media out there. I started reading things like Moon Knight and other stuff that I enjoyed, but I I largely was not sitting there Wednesday morning reading new comics for a good two months. And uh, now I'm even even then I'm picking and choosing when I read because I'm so disheartened by this. So, um, Marvel <laughs> editorial is still in my crosshairs. Like they still. Like, I don't know what's going to come of this new era, but it's 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 just insulting how quickly they have done an about face on Krico and all the pro uh, the progress I have. I have long lasting friendships and relationships that I have built out of the Krakoan era of comics and all of this new excitement. Um, and and for it to be undone like this is just just uh, disappointing. How is this number three? yeah i don't know what to tell you here man uh it's a typical you know comic book industry issue that everything has to always revert to some kind of preordained status quo rather than actually letting it progress a little bit um 
So I'm I, I feel for you because I have encountered that numerous times as well. Um, you know, thinking of, of like the the new Fifty Two over at DC and how it kind of like rebooted Superman and suddenly you know, like he's no longer married to Lois Lane and all of that progress was gone and and now we have to go back to like young Superman and trying to make his way and everything and it's just it's such a cycle in the comic book industry and it always leaves you disappointed because at some point. Whenever you enter the game, that is your, you know, comic book world. Those are your people. Um, and you want to follow them and see them progress and, and move forward. And then when they keep resetting, it, it it feels like you're running around in circles as a longtime reader. So I understand your disappointment, Chris. It's like spinning in the wind. Yep. All right, Dave. Um, I was surprised to see this. I know we've talked about it briefly, and I don't have all the context necessary. Um, but I'm very surprised to see this in number two on your list. This one's difficult to talk about because I want to be very clear up front that I don't want to be lumped in with a certain group of fans of this property who had a very different problem with this era than me. Um, but one of the big disappointments for me as a longtime fan of Doctor Who was the era of the 13th Doctor portrayed by Jodie Whittaker. Now, let's be very clear up front here. I did not have a problem in any way, shape or form with the Doctor regenerating into a woman. Um, and I thought it was actually a really cool idea. It could lead to some interesting storytelling, some, some a fresh angle on the character, uh, a different kind of doctor. I was very much here for it. Um, I'll also say that I'm a huge fan of uh, Jodie Whittaker's performance. She captures um, a version of the doctor to me that sits somewhere between uh, David Tennant and Matt Smith, you know, with, uh, with a lot of glee and joy in, in what she does, but also... Um, you know, a sort of a manic energy across all of it. Uh, so I really, really like Jodie Whittaker's performance as the Doctor. I, I thought that was very smart casting. Um, so, so what's my problem with this era? You know, it's very difficult to to, to kind of quantify because many of the things that they did, I actually really liked. I really liked that for the first year of of Jodie Whittaker's era on the show, they stayed away from classic monsters like the Daleks and the Cybermen and tried some new stuff. I really like to shift away from London as a main location and, and instead shifting towards Sheffield. I liked some of the changes that they did with uh, their cinematography. I think the, the 13th Doctor era has a very different kind of look and feel to it than what came before, what, what has come since. Um, and I really like the framing. I think a lot of the cinematography is very, very beautiful. So so what's my problem then? If I love the cinematography, I love the switch up, I love you know, uh, Whittaker's performance. What, what's the problem? You know, I, it, it's, it's kind of the writing. It didn't resonate with me, I guess. Um, so for all of my excitement, uh, with the performance and the look of the show, the stories that were being told never quite clicked, even when they should click on paper. Now I watched the first, I actually watched the first few episodes of, of, you know, Whittaker's first season back just now on, 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 HBO Max uh, recently, and the first two episodes, I'm a, I, I was there. You know, I was like, I see the vision. This this is something. You know, in the first episode, she kind of tries to find who she is, and she gets stuck with her new companions. In the second episode, she had lost her TARDIS, and she was looking for it. And then the tables were set. You know, we're ready to go. We have our characters. We have the TARDIS. We have our new Doctor. Now it's time to to jump in. And then it just kind of exists is is the best way to put it you know n nothing really 
grabs. I mean, there are some high point episodes. I particularly like, um, you know, the take on on the character, the master during this era. I thought that was a great performance too. But it's just like so much of this era of Doctor Who was just there writing wise it just kind of went through the motions anytime something big happened that would be really something for Whittaker to sink her teeth into and deal with the fallout the pace of the show kept just moving forward and so we never got we never got a moment where Whittaker could really sink her teeth into um I guess the consequences of all the crazy stuff that's happening to her you know there was no moment of reflection there were no none of the opportunities to really act um in reaction to some of the weird stuff that was going on. There's big revelations about the doctor's origins in this era. And, and Whittaker just kind of like her, her version of the doctor has kind of just like to decide, I'm just going to move on and ignore it. And instead of dealing with the fallout of that. And so I think there's so many odd choices in the writing that that entire era ends up feeling incredibly flat, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, not so much that there's peaks and valleys, but really that is just a, a, a consistent stream of all right, I guess. Um, and that that's kind of disappointing, especially coming off of, um, you know, Matt Smith and then Peter Capaldi's eras on the show, which were... Um, were show run by by Stephen Moffat, which you know took some really big swings in places, and and even there I'll say not everything necessarily worked, but there were very, you know, there were big big moments, and there were always you know moments that the Doctor could stop and reflect on the craziness happening, and there was some really great acting, particularly in Capaldi's era, that I really loved, but I think just the writing really let let the show down, let the cinematography down, let the acting down. And it still is just such a a meh era of Doctor Who for me. Even when I try to revisit, and I'm like, I'm going to power through the whole thing now. It's got to get better. It's got to get better. You know, it just it, it it doesn't, and I keep falling back off of it. And I think that's such a shame, especially for Whitaker, who's just such such a, a a bundle of energy in this role. And I really love watching her. And I just I just wish the stories had been better for her. I guess. So this isn't something that I can specifically comment on. I've only seen a few episodes of Doctor Who, and they are all Chris Eccleston. Um, But it is a sentiment that I can empathize with because this is exactly how I felt with The Rise of Skywalker. And if we would have had four things, Rise of Skywalker would have been right there. In fact, I deleted the Hellfire Gala and put uh, Rise of Skywalker. They were dueling back and forth. Um, and it was a much more interesting duel than anything in Rise of Skywalker had, but it was, it's, it's, it's such a upsetting disappointment because I don't want to be labeled as one of the Ray haters. I don't want to be lumped in with that group of people because I enjoyed the character of Ray. I loved her development in the last Jedi. I'm a last Jedi defender. And then it's like the rise of Skywalker is such a wet fart of disappointment and cowardice, in my opinion, that I I get where you're coming from. And it's not Daisy Ridley's fault. It's not the character of Ray's fault. It's the director. It's the decisions that were made behind the scenes that are so disappointing. And to kind of echo your sentiment on a writer, and this is not a shot at this person. They probably won't hear this, but I know that they are very sensitive. But Dan Slott's Spider-Man after Superior was such a disappointment 
and that would have made my list if we would have done five probably it's just i love this character and i want to follow their journey but this is such an unfulfilling journey to be along on yeah and this is kind of how i how i feel a little bit about about current amazing right it feels unfulfilling i guess um so i i you know it's it's what the episode, I guess, is all about this week. But uh, yeah, you're not. Uh, you're we not wrong. strongly agree to disagree on that one, especially since this uh, gang war or uh, street war, whatever this is. Yeah, yeah, uh, and I'm I'm going to try to get back into it because obviously at some point we're going to be talking about the current run, and I'm not saying there's not high points. I think that initial tombstone arc in particular really was was very very good. But you know, um, this is that we'll, we'll to get the there nth, nth degree. So yeah, yeah. So I, I we'll get there. Um, but yeah, what's your what's your uh, what's your next disappointment, Chris? Oh, how this didn't make number one. You know, something must have really let me down because I think this is if you were to do a Google search or something or ask the internet, this would be a popular top pick. It is 2007's Spider-Man Three, um, coming off the heels of the widespread acclaim and popularity of Spider-Man Two, which upon revisiting. I still maintain it's a tad overrated and uh, Alfred Molina was just carrying that film. Um, however, Spider-Man three was like at this strange moment because I graduated high school in 2006. And so the summer of 2007 was like after my first year of college, like I was an adult, I was going to movies like, I mean, like I went to the movies in high school, but like this was like an adult decision to see this movie and it was something i was hyped off of because of the popularity of venom like i've i've been kind of touch and go on symbiotes and venom but i remember like having my action figure of venom and it was such a cool thing and be able to see that on the big screen and then this movie happened and the symbiote and we've we've covered this movie we've done a review of it we've done we fixed it or what have you or whatever we did we just did Raimi revisited and I think we just talked about it uh the likes and dislikes it's just Topher Grace with frosted tips I'll never be able to get over that and I know that we can in retrospect over 15 years later we can laugh about Bully Parker and the jazz club and the dancing and the pointing at women. But as a Spider-Man fan and like some of those early Michelinie McFarlane issues are really great stuff. And the antithesis of Spider-Man and Venom is really leaned on and they're really good comic books. And they're fun episodes in the animated series and the animation of Venom and his tongue and that even in that opening title sequence are just so cool to see. And then we got this. There are some bright spots. You have I I ride for Bryce Dallas Howard. Like I will do, I'll do anything for that woman. Like she's great. She's fantastic. But if she is a role of Gwen Stacy. It's randomly just shoehorned in there. Like. It makes no sense, her inclusion in this story. Thomas Hayden Church is pretty great as Sandman, but it's so such a weird amalgamation of ingredients that this movie is just such a disappointment. And then, like, being an adult and paying money to see this movie, I'm like, 
this what is this like this is not a great start to adulthood entertainment man yeah this one was disappointing uh you're right 100 percent uh and i think uh you can really tell that raimi wanted to make a movie with sandman and the studio was insisting that he include venom because it's really the venom stuff that doesn't uh, coalesce in this movie right if you would just like i would love for a fan to like go through and like try to remove venom from the movie like do a fan cut that just focuses on sandman and what's going on with uh with Peter and Harry's relationship. And I think he would probably come out of the other end with a much better movie. Uh, Venom feels very much shoehorned in there. And a lot of the stuff that's just very Sam Raimi old fashioned ish, you know, which we already talked about a little bit uh, when we talked about the first Spider-Man movie, many episodes ago um, really comes to the forefront here that his vision of, of Peter influenced by, by the symbiont is to, to basically like, get weirdly emo and goofy rather than actually like dark and violent right it's a very odd take for fans of the comic book i guess um so yeah i, I think as sort of the the the, the capping off of of toby mcguire's spider-man i think this was definitely let down you're totally right it's funny uh so a peek behind the curtain um we had another episode planned another topic but this one we kind of we we didn't get the necessary prep done and so we needed a filler episode and so this episode was inspired by a video that came across my tiktok feed of a guy who said who who was at a a party and got to ask sam raimi he was like so spider-man 3 what happened <laughs> and raimi replied that the studio had gotten so involved and it became something it got to a point where he was just fulfilling a contractual obligation and having that context, it makes so much sense. Um, and so that, that kind of spawned the idea for this entire episode was, was that video that came across my timeline, but I still, I think this movie would have been a great deal better and no shade to Topher Grace. Cause he seems like a cool guy, but having Eric Foreman as Eddie Brock is just such a miscast. I know what they were going for. It didn't work, but I know what they were going for. They were definitely trying to do like sort of a through the, through the mirror sort of like this is a a twisted mirror image of Peter Parker. Because he and Toby, I get what you're saying, because he and Toby Maguire have a similar energy, but it just doesn't work. Yes. It just does not work. Yeah, no, it does not. Yeah, I agree. All right, Dave. So I'm really interested to dive into your greatest disappointment or letdown of all time. Okay, so again, I don't want to be lumped in with a certain group of fans, okay? I just want to be very clear on that. Um, the casting here, for the most part, was not the problem, okay? Let's let's just say that up front. My biggest disappointment is uh, the 2017 film, The Dark Tower, based on the series of books by Stephen King. Um, so here we, we're going to have to... I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to provide a little bit of background to, to under, for people to understand what, I, what my feelings are here. Um... I've been a big Stephen King fan ever since I was a little boy uh, when I snuck around and, and grabbed my dad's books and read them under the covers because, you know, they were not appropriate for, you know, my age group, but I read them anyways. And Pet Cemetery in particular scared the, the poopy out of me. I was uh, sleepless for a good two weeks after reading that book. Um, but I'm still a huge Stephen King fan to this day. If he writes it, I read it. Um, I understand his... Um, I guess the best way to put it is some of his... Some of his 
problems as a writer, things that he constantly keeps coming back to. For example, like, you know, religion equals bad. A lot of his bad guys are all, you know, religious in nature. Um, sometimes he goes too far, especially when you're looking at some of the, some of the stuff in the 80s. He includes some scenes that are not uh, really... Um, savory by modern standards i understand all of those things but i think at his core he's just a fantastic writer and i love his work um and the piece of work that i love the most i didn't encounter until i was uh, a teenager uh after i had moved here from europe and uh, a friend of mine uh when i said i'm a big stephen king fan asked if i'd ever read any of the dark tower and i said no no i have not and she gave me two books um the wastelands and the drawing of the three and it's a book three and two respectively not the first book didn't she she didn't have the first book and she said well you maybe should you know sample the dark tower and the dark tower is a piece of work that king started writing when he was 19 with the first book the gunslinger and wrote all the way into the early 2000s um and there was always speculation because he he took these huge breaks in between that he's never actually going to finish it you know supposed to be this big seven book cycle um and he just kept taking longer and longer breaks. And then he had that, uh, the very famous incident where he was hit by a car and was in the hospital and, you know, recovering and everything. And he was like, oh my God, I might really die before I finish the Dark Tower. And so he finally powered through and wrote the last three books and, and, and wrapped it up. And it stands in my mind as his magnum opus. It, it connects uh, with a lot of uh, his other stories peripherally. Um, and it is, to me, sort of a, a, a modern day Lord of the Rings, I guess. Uh, this this huge fantasy cycle that I think is going to outlast him. And ultimately, we're going to reach a point where some of his more famous works in the moment are probably going to fade away and the Dark Tower is going to be what's left standing. Um, it's hugely underappreciated. And the fans that are out there of this uh, of this book series are probably the, the most the most rabid of fans that you can get. Um and and I would count myself among the fans of this book series. I think it's it's absolutely fantastic and weird. And if you like weird, as you very well know, I do. There is probably nothing weirder out there than the Dark Tower. Um, it is it hits so many different uh, genres and so many different vibes and and because of that, it's just absolutely fantastic. So what it basically is, the story is the story of the last gunslinger, Roland Deschain, as he quests for the Dark Tower, which stands at the center of everything and keeps the, the universe and the multiverse really connected. And if the tower falls, then all of reality will collapse. And initially, at the very least, his uh, fight is with a guy by the name of Walter, who also is known as the Man in Black. And he's pursuing him and is trying to stop him and then reach the tower and make sure that the tower does not fall. Um, the movie adaptation that came out in 2017 featured Idris Elba as Roland and Matthew McConaughey as Walter, uh, and Tom Taylor's Jake Chambers, somebody quote unquote from our world who gets involved in this conflict. So what's the disappointment about the movie? I will keep this brief. Uh, it doesn't really function so much as, uh, an adaptation of the original Dark Tower books, but as a sequel, um, and a crappy one at that. Uh, it takes pieces from the first, the second, the third, and the seventh book and blends them together, cuts out huge swaths, swatches of character development, uh, an epic number of characters and ideas and concepts, and then tries to tell a story that is ostensibly based on the entire cycle of books in about 90 minutes. 
So if they wanted to do the Dark Tower, what they should have done realistically is just go ahead and adapt the first book, The Gunslinger, which is a, a decent book, I think, to adopt. Uh, but they did not. Instead, they tried to blend all of the books together into some unholy Frankenstein's monster that just doesn't work on a single level. And as somebody who loves The Dark Tower and holds it really as my favorite book series of all time, yes, Chris, even better than The Witcher to me. Uh, absolutely the thing, the best books ever. Uh, this is the absolute worst movie that could have been adapted from it. Uh, the casting of Idris Elba was inspired, and I was so looking forward to him playing Roland, and then the script let him down horribly. It, the movie was bland. It aimed for a PG-13 crowd with a story that is about as hard R as you can get. Uh, my only hope at this point to ever see this realistically adapted into live action is maybe some kind of like HBO prestige format series. That's about the only thing that could do this book series justice at this point. And this movie, um, if you ask if you ask fans of the Dark Tower books, if there has been a live action adaptation, they will tell you there is no movie. <laughs> and and that is how I feel. There is no movie. That is how disappointing it was. So this is this is interesting because I don't know if I just attracted a, a certain energy in my friendships, but my greatest nerd friend, you, and my greatest non-nerd friend, uh, my friend Josh, uh, this is both of your favorite book <laughs> or book series. And so, like, I, I don't know, like, um, I tried to evangelize to him on nerdy things, like, um, and try to get him to convince him that the comic book movies are good or whatever. He just doesn't get it because he doesn't read comics. He will never read comics and all this stuff. But it's so funny. Yes, he will. Tell him there's a tell him that Marvel produced a Dark Tower comic book. <laughs> well, and so They're, really, the graph their graphic novel adaptations are solid. Tell tell him he will he want to check those he, out. They're really he good. He won't. He's stubborn. He's hard headed. But it's so weird that both of you are, are like, this is your favorite book. And he feels obviously similarly about, about the film. And I'm just sitting here like, Hmm, maybe I should tap in. Maybe there's something I'm missing as far as the books go. Um, I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to willingly, willingly disappoint myself by watching the film um, as much as how do you, how do you mess up this cast? How do you mess up Idris Elba and Matthew McConaughey and Catherine Winnick? Lagertha herself the, the the first problem with Catherine winnick is that her role is basically in the books pretty much irrelevant mm. so they must i don't know what they did with this this, this did not work they, they they tried to like add some new characters and they tried to expand some characters roles and it's just it's the weird it's you know what it's like it's like when you hear a really good song and you love the song and you keep putting it on repeat mm -hmm. over and over again. And then one day the song comes on the radio, but it's not the song you love. It's some DJ's random remix of the song. <laughs> and you're like, oh my God, what did you do yeah. to my song? This sucks, dude. Hands off that song. That's what the Dark Tower movie feels like. Well, I get, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying, because let's roll. <sighs> Final disappointment. Jesus, do it, Chris. I got to meditate before i can just talk about this one um if you know anything about me you know that there is one series of characters that i love more than any and um it's the x-men i love them i grew up with them yes i'm one of those stereotypical kids that grew up with the animated series call me an old head if you will 
but I I love that animated series. I love those characters. I love the memes that it has generated. It's undefeated in that respect. And so the first X-Men movie was great. It was a fun time. It's, you know, looking back on it, we did an episode on it. It's it's not a perfect film, but it's fun. And it it has a message that it tells. Um, and it has some bad portrayals. Um, Hugh Jackman is is cool in the role. Like, I get what they were going for. He's way too tall to be Wolverine. <laughs> Wolverine is supposed to be like four foot eight, maybe five foot. But it's okay. He, we get the vibes. Uh, Sir Patrick Stewart is great as Charles Xavier. Um, and then... I mean, there's it's a tour de force performance from Serene McKellen as Magneto. Like, it's it's flawless. Then we get to X-Men 2, X-Men United, and as a Magneto fan, it's always been my dream to see him fight on the side of the X-Men. Insert one of my favorite characters in fiction, Nightcrawler. Like, that opening scene with Nightcrawler... I'd put that up there with with comic book movie history, man. Like that opening scene is so cool. Um, so I fell in love even even more in love with with Nightcrawler, and then it's 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 a pretty decent adaptation of God Loves Man Kills, which is a is a great comic. Um, there are some moments that have very very much not aged well, but is still a powerful um, book to me. Um, and so I was riding high and, um, like at the end of X2 spoilers for a movie that came out 20 years ago, you have Jean Grey sacrificing herself. And then as you're floating over this lake, you see the insignia of a bird and you're like, oh my God, they're going to do the Phoenix saga. How are they going to do that? They do it in the worst possible way. in X-Men The Last Stand, 2006. And all of my goodwill, all of my hope, all of my excitement is brutally bludgeoned with whatever this monstrosity of a film is. Directed by Brett Ratner, which makes sense. Uh, I'm going to read the synopsis here. The discovery of a cure for mutations leads to a turning point for mutants. They may now choose to give up their powers and become fully human or retain their uniqueness and remain isolated. War looms between the followers of Charles Xavier, who preaches tolerance, and those of Magneto, who advocates survival of the fittest. So all the progress that we made in X2 of Magneto allying himself, albeit in a fight of convenience, a conflict of convenience, if you will, um is completely out the window and they are back to Magneto, big bad guy. Um, Mustache twirling villain. Um, And then you just have the Phoenix Saga weirdly log jammed into this. I was excited about this because of the expansive cast of characters and most of them are just completely throwaways or poorly represented it's a it's a hot mess. I was a huge Colossus fan at the time. He gets one scene, and I don't think he even talks. 
Um, say what you want about the Deadpool films, at least Colossus gets some justice there. This was like a really part of the reason this was such a big disappointment is this released in May 26 of 2006 days after I graduated from high school. And so I was just like, all right, I'm done with high school. I'm getting an X-Men movie with all these characters I love. And it was complete. You know that Shang Tsung fatality, Dave, where he completely rips out your soul? Do you remember that one from Mortal Kombat? That's this movie. So that's how I felt watching this movie. And it was a steep decline after there have been... I, I mean, I understand um, gripes from DC fans about how bad the movies have been here and there, but you've got nothing on X-Men fans. And this was the start of the awfulness. Yeah, so I totally agree that this was a huge letdown. And it's, it's, it's a weird moment because, like you said, X2 wasn't half bad, right? So it's like this moment where Brian Singer left and then he messed up Superman and his and his uh, departure messed up X-Men, right? So it's just like a horrible decision all around, I think. But yeah, this was a big disappointment. I, I quite enjoyed X2 at the time. And then X3 was such a steep decline. It was really, really noticeable how... How 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 bad that movie was in comparison to the to the first two, which were were at least somewhat fun, you know. All right, that wraps up the greatest disappointments. Uh, what did we miss? What disappointed you? Be sure to hit us up on social media at Nerd by Word to share your thoughts and disappointments as we bond together in our letdowns. When we come back from our final segment, we are hitting you with our patented nerd commendations and recommending the good stuff to you. Welcome back to our final segment. We take things that we have been enjoying and share them out with you so you can get on the hype train with us. We call it Dave, we made an entire episode because we were so hyped and then it's even better than we anticipated. Yeah, so um, by the time this episode comes out, obviously, uh, we'll be approaching the second issue already. But let's just go ahead and take a moment and say, holy smokes, was Ultimate Spider-Man number one great. Uh, Ultimate Spider-Man, of course, is, uh, you know, taking place in a new version of the Ultimate Universe. It's written by Jonathan Hickman, Penciler's Marco Cicchetto. Uh, and let me tell you, uh, it's really something special. Uh, tagline officially for Marvel, the new Ultimate Spider-Man for a new Ultimate Universe. Visionary writer Jonathan Hickman and acclaimed artist Marco Cicchetto bring you a bold new take on Spider-Man with this the debut title of the new line of Ultimate Comics. After the events of Ultimate Invasion, the world needs a hero who will rise up to take on that responsibility. Pre- prepare to be entangled in a web of mystery and excitement as the all-new Ultimate Spider-Man comic redefines the wall crawler for the 21st century. They made every correct decision for this book. I, I, I don't know how far into spoiler territory I should go here, Chris, but every single choice that Hickman made for this book was spot on and so very smart. All the pieces fit together beautifully. The characters are on point. Peter Parker is on point. There are so many little things in this book that make my heart just like beat stronger for the Spider-Man character. It is the most fun I've had reading a Spider-Man book in many, many years. It clicks on every single level and any Spider-Man fan should be sure to check this one out. It is just so very good. Even alone, 
a small spoiler, even alone the fact that in this version of Spider-Man, he chooses the spider bite. He chooses the responsibility rather than it being hoisted onto him. I'm telling you, man, like that one page, I've got it pulled up here where it's spoilers. Uncle Ben's alive. But again, don't listen to this part of the episode. If you haven't read it, it's only one issue. It has Uncle Ben saying, then wake up. He opens the canister with the spider. Then it has MJ say, go get him, Tiger. And the spider's on his hand. Like, dude, I had goosebumps. I had chills. I'm about to go reread it again after we wrap up. Yeah, it's it's a it's it's a basically a near perfect book. So although I don't want to get too spoilery here, I think all the characters are on point. I think that the decisions made here for for the setup are incredibly smart. I am so here for this book. I I am I am riding for this book hard, man. It is one of the best things that I have read this year. It's right up there with uh, with the current run on Thor. I think it's just like a great great deep debut issue that just makes you want to read it. You know, so I'm here for it. I'm ready for it bring me the second issue now like take my money i want it i'm I'm, i love this book man one one nitpick as a joe robbie robertson super fan there is a moment that i don't like and it feels out of character for him but i'm i'm intrigued to to hopefully he gets more more time to kind of flesh that out i think i think that this is just the beginning and you'll see you'll see more coming soon all right chris so what is your nerd commendation this week so if you know two things about me, I love mutants of all kinds. So I love my X-Men and I love my turtles. And so I was playing around on Paramount Plus and I found Turtle Power, the definitive history of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. This was made 10 years ago. It's hard, hard to believe, but we are on. We are now upon the 40th anniversary of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles creation. And this documentary was made for the 30th anniversary back in 2014. And so it just has a bunch of footage of back the early days of the Mirage Studios, the jam pieces, the creation of the action figures, which led to the animated series and kind of how like those things were kind of intertwined. Like you can't have action figures without an animated series. You can't have an animated series without action figures backing it up, seeing how all of that kind of fell into place, kind of the jam session kind of atmosphere that they had at Mirage Studios where they were just hanging out and kind of riffing and drawing stuff. That was so cool to see. Um, Kind of upsetting to see how Eastman and Laird kind of drifted apart in their relationship and then reuniting for the 30th anniversary was, was, was heartbreaking and then cool to kind of see the resolution of that. But this is just like a really fun look at something that means so much to me. They have a deep dive, a section on the voice actors from that original series. Um, They don't spend any time on the Michael Bay films, even though those were close by. So that's okay. (laughs) No bones about that one. Um, But this was this was really fun. Um, A really fun uh, kind of of look at like the history and the the origin point uh, and the inception and a great way to celebrate the 40th history. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely going to check this out. I'm just a a, a big TMNT fan from my childhood, as as we've you know just just discussed many to many times at this point. So uh, seeing some of the behind the scenes stuff, I'm I'm all here for man. That that has to be that has to be explored. I'm here for it. And while we're here, um, this could have been a news story, but my initial suppositions were correct. 150 is going to be the end of our beloved IDW run. Um, they will continue with like short series and everything, but the end of an era. So cheers to my favorite 
comic book in in circulation. Yeah, I'm very, very curious to see what IDW is going to do moving forward. All right, that wraps up another episode of the Nerd by Word. We thank you so much for riding along with us. If you like what you heard, be sure to like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, whether that is Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or nerdbyword.com. And of course, find us on social media and let us know how. what are your thoughts about our episode and uh, what were your biggest nerd disappointments. Uh, we are available on all major social media networks at Nerd by Word and individually at that Nerd Dave and at that Nerd Chris. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd by Word is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.